0: Welcome to the 91st episode of the HeadKick KO podcast. Today we are here to discuss UFC 283. UFC 283 is going to be the only thing on the docket today. Uh, there wasn't really any big news outside of UFC 283. Uh, we got some pretty big news that happened at the event, so we'll cover that uh, when it comes up in the recap. Uh, but outside of UFC 283... Um, nothing there and we have no fight card to preview next week either so um, right now we're rocking with just uh, UFC 283 and um, hopefully we can uh, make this quick and make this good but to do that we'll get right in with the main event and that was Jamal Hill defeating Glover Teixeira by unanimous decision with um, three scorecards that read 50-44. So uh, this was a a pretty good title fight and a pretty good fight from Jamal Hill. First of all, um, I was really surprised by the pace that he was able to put on Glover Teixeira. And obviously Glover Teixeira did not get tired. And I think uh, Jamal has been critiqued a little bit because people are saying he he, he, he was tired in there and other heavyweights would have taken advantage of that. But um, Jamal threw a lot of strikes, right? Um, When you're beating up on opponents, you get tired. And it wasn't a one-sided beating up, right? Glover Teixeira landed some shots. Glover Teixeira got in some good positions on the ground. So it wasn't um, overly one-sided, but at the end of the day, it was 50-44 on the scorecard, so that is a one-sided fight. And when, in you, when you get into a one-sided fight, it is hard to keep up a pace for five rounds. That's not an easy thing to do, especially at light heavyweight. So I'm not going to sit here and critique the cardio like some people are. I think the cardio looked pretty good. Um, in comparison, Anthony Smith had two solid rounds against Glover Teixeira. And he tired and, and ended up getting finished in that fight. So when you're looking at someone like Jamal Hill, who... Also had some very good early rounds. He didn't tire in those later rounds. So that is something that um, I think is impressive in its own right. And then Jamal showed off the power and technical boxing that he has. Um, And it's interesting with Jamal because sometimes he's super technical. And sometimes he will get crazy and throw some wild strikes. And I think that's what makes him. I think it adds a level of unpredictability to his game that is quite impressive, that I do like. Um, I like how he, he he makes the head kick in a little bit more than he usually does, and that was paying off a lot. He rocked Glover a couple times with some big, big head kicks. I'm always a fan of head kicks here, obviously. Um, it's not called the Head Kick KO Podcast for nothing. So I think this was a very good fight from Jamal Hill, and I think he showed a lot of skills that I am very fond of. Um, on the ground... I think this was interesting because I think you can give a lot of credit to Jamal Hill for the things he did in defending takedowns. There were a couple times where I was worried that Glover was going to be able to take advantage of some of those positions on the ground uh, when he had Mount in the fifth round. And it was either the first or second round. He landed a nice takedown and had some ground control, I believe, the second round. Um, But my memory may be off um, and I, I don't know how I'm going to look at that, right? In terms of in terms of what he did in that fight, I was very impressed with how he managed the groundwork, but I don't know how I'm going to project that two fights against guys like Magomed and Goliath. I think that is a hard call, right? Because I think Teixeira is one of the best grapplers in the sport, but I do not think his grappling looked as good as it had in previous fights so I don't know whether that is Glover's grappling slipping a little or if that is Jamal Hill being what he did um would classify him as one of the best defensive grapplers in the sport if he was able to go out and um grapple that type of performance if Glover Teixeira's grappling was still at a hundred percent so I think that is a reasonable question and I'm not sure that I have the answer um at a minimum, his stock did go up in the defensive grappling department. I think he showed better skills than a lot of people expected. Um, anything else here with Jamal Hill? I guess the last thing I was at, would add for Jamal's performance is just that when you look at these shots that he landed to the face of Glover Teixeira, obviously those cuts uh, speak for the damage uh, that he is capable of, of pouring out. Now, In terms of adding anything else to this, um, I don't really have much else. I guess we'll go into the post fight, what happened. Um, Obviously, Jamal gets about very emotional. Um, That was a very cool moment to see. And Glover Teixeira retires right after. And this, first we'll talk about Glover Teixeira. Actually, so Glover Teixeira, obviously, great career. Um, I'm not gonna go too in depth, right? You watch Glover to Shera fight. I watched Glover to Shera fight. The commentary booth watched Glover to Shera fight and, and gave some good analysis um, after the fact as to what he means in MMA. And every single place you go to consume MMA media will really pour on the love for Glover to um, Tishera. and that is all warranted. But um, I don't really know what I, what I have to add to any of those discussions that you haven't already heard. I agree with everything that everyone else is saying where, go over to Cheryl, one of the toughest guys in the sport, one of the hardest working guys in the sport, one of the most durable guys in the sport, one of the most determined guys in the sport, right? He didn't just stumble onto a belt at 42 years old. He had to work to get there. I, I really can't respect Glover Teixeira enough. And not to mention, right, his path to the UFC um, that long while ago was not an easy one. Glover Teixeira had to really work to get to the UFC. Because if you're unaware, he couldn't get into the UFC because he had visa issues getting into the country. So he could not fight for the UFC. So that took a good chunk out of his, what would have been um, years on his MMA career so um, that does you know that does not not obviously bode well for you know your longevity in the sport if you're struggling to get into the UFC but he was able to overcome that hurdle so all respect in the world to Clover Teixeira now um, I, I do have a very big complaint here because it did suck to see Glover Teixeira retire in front of nearly nobody nearly that arena was that was a tough from a fan's perspective it really sucked to see the state of that crowd that we had in brazil um it wasn't sold out right you could see empty seats on the not even in the nosebleeds but um in the lower bowl exactly what you were seeing on tv you could see those empty seats and then That place emptied out. Um, I don't know if it was during the fight. I I did not. I was not really paying attention to the crowd during that fight, to be honest. I was very tuned into the fight itself. So I don't really know when everyone decided they were going to pile out. I just realized in the post fight, I was like, oh, when they were doing the interviews, I was like, there's nobody in there. Absolutely nobody. So I assume it was after the fight. Um, But Jamal Hill gave his post fight. press conference his his speech in in front of nobody Glover Teixeira retired in front of nobody which is a real shame because that's a special moment for him to retire in his home country of Brazil and for the Brazilian fans not to be there to witness that um, is is very sad Um, because if you look at Shogun's retirement Shogun had a very special moment in front of the Brazilian crowd and Glover Teixeira did not get that not because he didn't deserve that but It was because there was no one there to give him that um, award or or praise. Not to mention, drinks were thrown at Brandon Moreno, and he did not deserve that either. And Glover Teixeira, um, very, very solid gesture and very kind at the post-fight press conference. Told the Brazilian crowd, hey, do not throw anything um, at, at Jamal. This guy's a champion. This guy's a great fighter. I'm going to walk out with him to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, That's a very special moment where, you know, that's Glover Glover Teixeira's last time walking out of that cage. And he's willing to share it with Jamal um, to make sure he uh, was able to get out of there safely. So that was uh, very special. And I I think that speaks highly to who Glover Teixeira is as a person um, in his retirement, in his last fight, to uh, speak on that and give that opinion. Now, um, also, I don't want to just gloss over um, the state of Brazil as a country. I don't really have uh, an, an informed opinion. Um, this isn't a political podcast. Um, I'm not really a political person, and I don't really understand fully what is going on. But I know Brazil is in some turmoil a, as a country and in in the political spe- sphere. Um, so I don't know if the emptiness of the Brazil of the of the stadium. I don't know if that was a direct result of, you know, the state of the, the country and the political instability at the moment. Like I said, um, um, I'm not super educated on international politics, so I'm not too sure, but I also uh, would like to say that just in case I don't want it to make it seem like I'm trying to slam on the Brazilian crowd for not showing up um, in numbers and selling out that arena. When there are things out of their control that prevented that, so I also wanted to make that clear. All right, now that stuff wasn't as fun to talk about, but um, there is one last thing I want to address before we move on. From actually, there's two things we got to do. We got a match make for Jamal Hill, um, and I would like to speak on my opinions of Jamal Hill prior to this fight. Um, So first, we're gonna start with my opinions. Um, If you're a longtime watcher of the Head Kick Kale podcast. Uh, it's very clear that I have thought very highly of Jamal uh, throughout his UFC career, and I have also made it known that I am very, very biased in favor of Jamal Hill. Um, I, use, I and I do my best to look at his fights and his fighting skills through an unbiased lens because I think that is unfair for me to come on and, and give biased commentary or. Bias opinions especially when I'm doing like previews and predictions I, I do my best to stay unbiased I think I do that very very well into the best of my ability uh, for example uh, Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovski 3 Max Holloway is one of my favorite fighters of all time and I, and I picked Volkanovski in that fight so I think I do do a fairly good job of staying unbiased um, in analyzing fighters um, but like I said, right, um, I, I I was early in on Jamal Hill because I knew who he was because he was from Michigan and I am from Michigan, so um, I was very aware of who he was as a fighter and I began to watch him and, and I told you guys he had championship potential and it is nice to see that pay off, right? Um, some people have an asterisk, asterisk next to this one because he didn't take the belt from the sitting champion. Uh, but I, I do not, I'm not going to add to that narrative. I think that is a silly, silly opinion to have, right? I think this is a legitimate belt. If he were to win this belt off off of someone like, you know, if he were to win it off Thiago Santos, for example, in his last fight, then, you know, we'd be having a different discussion. But I, I'm old enough to remember remember when at UFC 282, The the, when Yuri Bohashka had to pull out of the rematch with Glover Teixeira, and fans poured out an outcry that Glover Teixeira was not fighting for that belt, right? And if fans are pouring out an outcry that Glover Teixeira was not in a championship fight, that was because they thought he was one of the best fighters in that division. That's because they thought he deserved a championship opportunity. And now, um, if Glover Teixeira is that championship-level fighter that so many people campaigned for, then you have to give credit to Jamal Hill for going out there and defeating him. You can't have it both ways. You can't say in December that Glover Teixeira is, you know, one of the best light heavyweights in the world and should be fighting for the belt, and then when he loses his fight for the title, you claim that you know he wasn't a championship level fighter anymore. So Jamal Hill's win doesn't uh, count, right? I, I think that is a lazy narrative that doesn't make much sense. And that is something completely out of Jamal Hill's control. He took out one of the best fighters in the sport, um, and, he, and he deserves respect for that. And not to mention, everyone's act, acting like it's completely impossible that Jamal Hill would beat Yuri Prohoshko. I would love to see the betting lines for that fight. Um, I'm interested to see if they would be. I do think it would be a great fight. I think that would be a, an absurd fight because if you look at these two, Jamal Hill versus Glo- or Jamal Hill versus Yuri Prohashka, who's attempting a takedown? I don't think either of them do it. Both guys have ridiculous striking. Both guys have knockout power, and if I had to pick a hole, which would be very nitpicking, right? If I were to nitpick a hole in each guy's striking, uh, the first thing I'd probably say for both guys is their striking defense, right? Yuri Prohashka and Jamal Hill. Both got hit too many times by Glover to share it in their fight with Glover. Uh, Jamal got hit a few too many times in his fight with Tiago Santos. Yeripo Hoski got hit a few too many times in his fight with Dominic Reyes. And that is not to say that they're bad fighters, right? Um, but rather that is to say if you were to nitpick, that would be their number one flaw, right? Those guys are better offensively than they are defensively. And that does not mean they're bad defensively, right? That's not what I'm saying because you watched Jamal Hill land a lot of pull counters there on Glover Teixeira, right? Uh, But he did get hit uh, several times um, with shots as well, right? And that is not, you know, once again, that's not a shot because, you know, sometimes you got to take some to give some, right? Both of those guys are very aggressive fighters. It's not like those guys are sitting on the outside throwing 10 strikes around and getting pieced up. These guys are outlanding their opponents, uh, by very large margins. So it's not even that big of a negative. But what, I, what the anal- ana- analysis I'm trying to give you here is that that would be a very, very good fight with a lot of offensive strikes landed. Um, so yeah, that's really my piece with Jamal Hill. Um, I just wanted to recognize that, you know, yes, I called this. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I said Jamal Hill would be a champion. Um, and, I, and I've written it in, in publications as well. Um, But I'm not going to sit here and pretend to be um, this great god of MMA because I was able to call that Um, uh, because I am a little biased. And um, I do think it was a pretty easy call because the talent was just sitting there. So um, I I did want to acknowledge that. Now, um, matchmaking for Jamal Hill, right? The last thing, and then we're moving on from the main event, Uh, pretty good time on a main event here. Uh, Last thing, like I said, Jamal Hill, who's he gonna fight? So the number one question here that you have to answer is, when is your prospect returning? And from there, you get a, a time, and then you say, is it worth the wait, right? Is it worth the wait? So, Jamal Hill versus the Prohaska. pro hashka If you're told July, is it worth the wait? I'd say yes. If you're told October, is it worth the wait? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. That's getting out there. If Jamal would be able to fight in, let's say, January... We'll say May, June, May or June against a different fighter. Would you wait till something like October to see him fight Yuri, right? Uh, that's a tough ask. But at the same time, the one thing that Yuri Pohoshka versus Jamal Hill, booking that fight immediately closes any, like, open question about the light heavyweight division, right? Because even now, like I said, I think it's unfair to criticize Jamal Hill's current status as as the champion. But it is also important to acknowledge that, you know, Yuri Pahashka did not lose that belt. And he does deserve a a title fight. And he is, if Jamal Hill is the best light heavyweight on the planet, Yuri Pahashka would be the second. Uh, And and those two need to go in there and, and fight because that's what you do in the UFC. You put number one versus number two. And if Jamal Hill is number one, Yuri would be number two. Um, and if you're of the opinion that Yuri Prohoshka is still number one, Jamal Hill is the guy with the belt. So then Yuri Prohoshka, the best fighter in the world, would need to go fight Jamal Hill. So no matter how you view Yuri Prohoshka or Jamal Hill or their time or status as champion, that fight would close any questions. Uh, in, in theory, obviously, as long as you don't get a draw or an eye poke or a no contest or something like that. But in theory, uh, that fight closes the strange strangeness that we've had on the light heavyweight division over the last two months. And I and I always do that as a positive. Um, for example, the featherweight division under Alexander Volkanovski has been very good while he's been the champion. Obviously, um, he's going off to 155 well-deserved, but that's a good example of a, of a division that has had a solid champion, and that division feels a lot better as a whole. Aljamain Sterling, after he be, beat Pierre-Yan not by a legal knee, um, that division felt a lot more whole, right? made a lot more sense, um, for example. Um, so I think that's what we need to do with the heavyweight division and, and just get rid uh, of any questions that can be had. Um, if that like, okay so if that can't happen if we need to do someone else we're looking at Megomed Ian Blahovich, Alexander Rockage. Anthony Smith, Nikita Kurlov, Volkan Uzdemir, Ryan Span, Johnny Walker. Um, obviously not all those guys are in title contention. I don't know how far. I When I, when I said Anthony Smith, I was like, oh, crap. Now i got to throw other guys in here because Anthony Smith isn't getting a title shot. But um, the real discussion centers around Nagmatic Alive and Jan Blachowicz, with Alexander Rockage being your outside guy. But I do think Alexander Rock definitely needs one more win. I don't think that is um, a bad call at all. Um, and we don't need to match. But match make the whole division right now. Um, but right now, for Jamal Hill, uh, got live or Jan Blachowicz, who Who do you think is better? Um, you, they literally had a draw. You can do a coin flip. You can go. The UFC can do anything they want. They can say, well, we want Jamal to fight on this date, so we'll figure out who can make it. We'll give someone number one priority. And if that person can't make it, we'll call the other person. Or they could say, we think Jan Blachowicz is the more would be the more entertaining fight with Jamal Hill so we're going to go that direction or they could say we think Magomed Ankalaev is better than Jamal Hill so we'll go that direction or, or, or excuse me better than Jan so we'll go that direction it really just depends the direction the UFC wants to go I anticipate based on the fact that the UFC wanted to do uh, Magomed versus Glover Teixeira for the belt uh, at UFC two eighty three, I think that goes to show that it will be Magomed that will get the first shot over Jamal Hill. So, or I keep saying Jamal Hill over Yamblahovic to fight Jamal Hill. So uh, that is what I would expect for that. And I think the looming right thought that you've probably wondering why why I haven't brought this up is Alex Pereira. Um, Alex Pereira, you know. The, the storyline for Alex Pajeda versus Jamal Hill is sitting right there, sitting right there. All the UFC has had, all they got to do is go grab it. It's sitting right there. It's Alex Pereira, middleweight champion, going up to become a double champ to avenge the loss that his friend and training partner Jamal Hill or er, Glover Teixeira suffered against Jamal Hill. He's going to avenge that. They've already run the promo baggages. It's already been all over ESPN MMA. It's already been all over Sports Center. You've seen it everywhere. They're, they've already thrown it out there. They've put the teaser on the platter. You know, they've thrown, they, they've baited the hook. They've thrown it out, and they're seeing how many bites they get. If they get a lot of nibbles on that line, they're gonna, they're gonna make that fight. Um, and I think that's, I think that is. I don't think that is the way that this should go down. Because I think, first of all, you need to give Israel Adesanya a rematch. I, I think that just based off of what, he, what Israel Adesanya has done in the UFC, he deserves that opportunity to go get a rematch, first and foremost. So it's not like he doesn't have a fight at 185 pounds. The fight is there. There's a fight to make. Right. Also, I think going up a division should not be like a a just thing that we throw out in the air like that. I think going up a division to become a two-time double champion or a two-time champion and a double champion, I think that should be an elite group of fighters. I think you should need to do special things in your own weight class before you go and try and get that double champ status and right now you have people saying like I said earlier that I, I said it would be unfair to criticize Jamal Hill for how we won this belt and the fact that you know regardless of if that is an regardless of if this is an accurate narrative or not there's going to be people running with a narrative that Yuri Prohoshka is the number one light heavyweight in the world that, that's going to be the narrative that you get regardless of, of anything else that's going to be a narrative and a common thought, whether it's right or wrong. However, that really throws a wrench in your Pereira versus Jamal Hill plan because going up to win win the double champ status and do it against a guy that people view as not the best fighter in that division, it, it, it puts an asterisk next to it. So I think it would be smarter for Pereira to go up later, Right. He doesn't have to do it now. The fight against Izzy is there. And if he wins, he goes up. If he loses, he goes up. If he loses and goes up, that makes even more sense because that means this time at 185 is done. And he moves up. Um, so, like I said, I, I do think that... Uh, I, I do think the UFC needs to wait on that. And I have spoken similar thoughts before, right? This isn't the first time where I'm saying a guy needs to pick up more wins before it, someone challenges for that double champ status. Uh, I had the same critique when Israel Adesanya fought Jan Blahovic. I said, uh, I don't remember what the layout of that division was at the time of that fight. I know for the heavyweight division, Jan Blahovic had just fought um had just won the belt and that was his first title defense was his fight against Israel Adesanya and let me pull up Izzy's record just so I can get the right timeline here um why is this why is this not pulling up nice um great um but basically I said that okay Yamblahov it was Paulo Costa, he had just come out the Paulo Costa win. I don't remember who I said he should fight. I don't know if he, if I said he should fight Vittori or if I said he should fight Whitaker again. It was one of those two thoughts. But I said he should do that and cement his spot in in the sport um, as a legend in the sport. And then once he does that, then you move up to 105. At the same time, Jan Blachowicz defends the belt and you get yourself a... Um, a more legitimized champ, you let Jan Blachowicz grow his star power and you build that into a super fight, right? You can't just walk into a super fight. You, you don't just, you know, it's okay to build a layer onto that. And I, I think that would be, if Alex Pereira moves up to 205 pounds to be the next challenger in that weight class, it would seem like a rush super fight that they're just throwing together uh, to try and make a, a big pay-per-view. So I don't agree with that. And in addition, I think that once Pereira goes up to 205, he's not going back down to 185. That seems so uh, incredibly unlikely to me that he would experience a life of not cutting weight, um, probably naturally add a little bit of weight, and then go back down to 185 pounds to take on Israel out of Sanya for the second time. So you're basically saying... You know, we're doing this. We're giving Pereira this opportunity to become a double champ at the expense of that fight with Israel Adesanya. Uh, part two, um, uh, I'm i I'm out on that. Now, uh, moving on, Brandon Moreno versus D.V. Uh This was another really good fight. Uh, I was surprised by how dominant Brandon Moreno was. I, I did pick him to win this fight, but I, I did think it would be much, much closer. Uh, I, I think Moreno won the first... Two rounds, and uh, he obviously won the third. uh, But the scorecards gave it, uh, gave the second round to Figueroa. I I disagreed with that. I had Moreno up 3 0 on my scorecard after that third round. But the things we saw from Moreno were very good, right? He was very accurate with his hands. He was laying in the 1 2, doing a lot of damage with that 1 2. He was able to get some good work on the ground, controlled position on top. Figueredo did a really good job with his guillotine. Almost landed that two times. One time was a lot closer than the other to landing. Nonetheless, two serious submission attempts. Uh, and credit to Moreno for fighting out of those because that is a lethal, lethal guillotine. And the work that Brandon Moreno was doing with his hands I thought was very, very impressive. He looked away quicker, right? That's the, that's the common thought here. Right, if you if Moreno's looking quicker than Figueroa and getting in and out and avoiding some of the big shots, he's going to find success, and that is what he did here. Eventually, he does land, uh, catches the kick, lands a lead hook, and lands that perfectly, puffs up the eye of Deavis and Figueroa. I imagine uh, if the medicals for that for that fight ever get released, uh, um, Figueredo probably has a broken orbital, and then right. What, you, what do you hear? Uh, you see D.B. a contest the eye poke, right? I'm I, I, I I'm out on that narrative as well. Um, this podcast is, we. I've spent a lot of time discussing narratives. Um, and a lot of these narratives are wrong or false, right? This eye poke, uh, there is no eye poke. There is none. You see it, it's a post off the head, right? A lot of people, you know, Posting off the head is a... Th- you do that for a reason. You do that to create separation. In that scenario, why would Brandon Moreno post on the head, right? Well, it's because he just entered in to land a hook. So you post on that head to prevent the takedown. If you can post that head, then Divison Figueredo cannot level change, you get to that body lock, and land a takedown. So that posting on the head, he doesn't just do it for no reason. He posts on the head, Um as a defensive measure, and it is a po, it is a post, right? Fingers up, right? Fingers were not extended out, fingers were up, and the palm lands on the eye of Figueroa. The palm, right, is over the eye. That's legal. And not only was the palm over the eye, which is legal, but it was the opposite eye from the injured eye, right? So he hits him in the right eye, and then posts over his left eye, legal, right? Um, the left eye had no damage, there was no eye poke, everything he did was legal, he landed a punch that broke the orbital, um, and then proceeded to land ground and pound on the same orbital when it got to the ground, so it's a very clean finish from Brandon Moreno, so I just want to, I, I know I didn't. it's not really fun to discuss all these controversies in, in disagreements, But uh, I think the narrative that, you know, there was an eye poke is wrong because the fingers were up. He posted and it wasn't even the eye that got injured. Uh, So I'm disagreeing with that narrative completely. And if you want to know the honest truth, the honest truth is that if they stop that fight for that eye poke, they look at the replay, they go, oh, there was no eye poke. And then they bring the doctor in because the eye is puffed up and the fight is stopped. So they go no eye poke, we're good to keep fighting, and then Mark Goddard says, it wasn't Goddard, who was it, I don't remember who the ref was, but then the ref says, all right, we're going to bring in, we're going to bring in the doctor, since his eyes puffed up, and then the doctor just fights it stop, stops the fight two and a half minutes earlier, and Moreno gets out of there with the win, um, so that's what happened, anyways, these two guys right i really like the future of each of these guys for different reasons but obviously moreno was the one who was able to get the best of the trilogy or the quadrilogy winning two of the four fights uh with one of them being a draw moreno was also the one to get two finishes in those fights now the future's pretty cut and dry for moreno right Moreno's the champion at 125. He's going to defend that belt as many times as he can. And the first fight on the docket is going to be Alexandria Pantoja. Doesn't really any question. You know, he's already got the win over Kaikar France. You know, you're not giving it to Roy Vall, Nicolau, Perez. Right? Um, And the three guys that we have constantly seen... Moreno, I think Moreno mentioned him in every single interview that he did when talking about the future after this fight. The names have been Pantoja, Nicolaou, and uh, Manel Cobb. I think that is pretty accurate. I would throw Amir Albazi in there as well. Um, but those are some fights that I think are very good fights. Obviously, if Kaikar France goes on a run and takes out two of those guys, he's right back in the title contention, and he'd be working his way at a rematch. Same with Brandon Vall If Royval can beat two of those guys, he can get himself a rematch. But um, most importantly, the next fight that we will see Brandon Moreno win will be against Alexandre Pantoja. Now, for Devisan Figueiredo, we're going to get wild here, right? He's going up to 135, and I think it is the right move. I don't think there is much argument to be had here. This is pretty s- cut and dry, straightforward. You know, he simply put, he was cutting too much weight to get to 125. He was cutting too much weight. And this is the good move. The only problem we run into here is if Cejudo gets that 135-pound belt, those two are not going to fight. So uh, that's the only downside that, that this really brings. But at the end of the day, right, That's not something you worry about right now. That's not something you worry about today. And I don't think Henry Cejudo has that many fights left in him to where he is going to be in a position where that's a serious problem. I think if Cejudo comes back, right, um, which I, I think at this point it does look incredibly likely that it's Cejudo versus Sterling next for the belt. And I think that if... If Cejudo does do that and Cejudo wins, I don't think Cejudo spends a lot of time at bantamweight. I think he probably, at most, he would defend one time and then try and go up to 145 and become a three-division champion. Whether you think that's a good idea, whether you think that's a bad idea, I think that is the course of action um, that Cejudo is going to try to take. Um, here, I think he's, you know, probably got his sights set on, on Volkanovski. He's already called for that fight, right? He's tried to set up that fight already. And that's a very compelling fight because Henry Cejudo is widely renowned as one of the best mixed martial arts artists of all time. Um, pure talent, two division champ, lots of positives for him. And Alexander Volkanovski has cemented himself as one of the best pound for pound fighters in the world. So I think that is a very compelling matchup, and that would be a very close fight to call. Um, I did think I, I did think I would know who I would pick in that fight, but I will not spoil you with that information right now. I also know who I would think I would pick in the Sterling and Cejudo fight. Um, and I'll give you a hint: they're not the same people. So that that's your that's your hint um, tells you quite a bit. You could probably figure it out on your own. Um, anyways, so. Um, I, that is like we obviously went on a little bit of a tangent there, right, with Cejudo and what he's going to do next. But um, at the end of the day, I do I do think that this is a good move for Figueredo. Um, and even if he gets stuck behind Cejudo at one thirty five, right, I, I think that is better than what would he have to do at one twenty five? Win three four fights, probably before he got another crack at Moreno. He'd have to win a lot of fights. So I think this is. A quicker route to the title, even if Suhudo is the guy holding that 135-pound belt. Now, in terms of matchups, it's hard to tell you who I want to see Figueroa fight next because every single, almost every single person in this bantamweight top 15 is booked. The only guys that are not booked are Eljamine Sterling, who Aljamain Sterling, Sean O'Malley, and Umar Nurmagomedov, right? And I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't do Devisan versus versus Umar. That would be pretty crazy if they did. And that would be a pretty fun fight. But I don't think they do that. As far as Sean O'Malley and Eljamain Sterling go. I think the plan of action here is to have Cejudo fight Sterling. And then have Sean wait and fight the winner. I think that is the course of action that the UFC is going to go with for this one. Now, that leaves us fights against the winner or loser of Piotr Jan versus Mirab Divalashvili. You can book Devisan versus either of those guys. That's an absurd fight. Piotr Jan versus Devisan absolutely crazy. That's, a fun, that's the fight that I think I'd want most. Uh, Marlon Vera sitting there at 4 I think is another incredible fight. He's booked with Corey Sandhagen at five. So the winner of Cheeto versus Sandhagen or the loser once again, right? Um, the loser of Cheeto and Sandhagen should not fall too far in those rankings because at the end of the day, they're better than Rob Fawn at six. They're better than Cruz at seven. Um, they're better than a, a lot of those guys behind them. So I don't think the loser should fall that far, um, probably stay in the top five. Yanes is sitting there at 13. He may be able to do something crazy here if he can get the jump on Rob Bont. That would skyrocket him to the top six or so. That would be. I don't think they make that fight, but it's an interesting one to think about, and it's a little bit closer than you probably think uh, to happening. Dominic Cruz, right? At this point, I love all these fights. Oh, also, Dominic Cruz is not booked either. Um, I accidentally skipped him earlier, so my apologies if you if I got you thinking Dominic Cruz had a fight book, That's my apologies. I I did skip him. Um, does Dominic Cruz actually fight again? Is an interesting question to ask, and I don't know the answer. Anyways, um, we can keep we can keep doing this all day, but all these fights are great, right? If they want to re- retire Dominic Cruz, they give him Figueroa. Songy Don versus Figueroa, great fight. If they want to retire Pedro Munoz, they give him Figueroa. Uh, Ricky simone Umar Nurbagametov, Chris Gutierrez, Said Nurbagametov, Jack Shore is moving to 145. I'm pretty sure, right? Even the guys at the bottom of the division, they are not nearly as appealing, obviously. But those are still, you know, interesting, interesting things in my opinion. That's That goes to show how stacked that 135-pound division is. Uh, And we've talked a lot. We've talked a lot, so we need to pick up the pace here. Uh, Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny. Magny Stuttered on both of their names. Let's go. Uh, Gilbert Burns versus Neil Magny. Submission first round. I was surprised that he was able to get it as easily as he did. I thought Neil Magny was going to tough this one out for a little bit longer. But uh, credit to Gilbert Burns for going out there and getting a solid, solid win. You cannot ask for much more. Uh, For Gilbert Burns, I think he is on point with his analysis of what he needs to do next. He should be getting a big name, a big time opponent. I think Colby Covington makes the most sense. I'm down for that fight. I think Hamdat is jumping up to 185. I do not think he fights again at 170. Um, So I'm not even too worried about that. Um, So I think Gilbert versus Colby in that scenario with Chemayev moving up to 185, I think that makes the most sense. Um, With all due respect to Bilal Muhammad, um, I I think that is the fight we need to see. If something happens and they do Chemayev versus Colby, um, or if Colby says, I don't want that fight, I won't fight Gilbert. Then in that scenario, I think we need to do Gilbert versus Bilal. I think that is a good fight. Four versus five. And if Chemayev's gone, it's three versus four. Um, no matter who you put higher or lower. Um, so that's a good fight to determine a next title contender. Especially if Leon Edwards is able to get the jump on Kamara Usman. If Edwards beats Usman again and Chemaev is at 185, someone's real close to a title shot. Whether it's Colby, whether it's Bilal, whether it's Gilbert, somebody's closer to a title shot than you think. Steven Wonderboy Thompson sitting there at six. It sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. But he would move up to number five if Chimaev removes himself from the rankings. I'm just saying we're looking at some crazy possibilities if that string of events occurs, right? That's pure madness, right? That's like if you wanted the maddest scenario I could think of, that's what I would tell you. I'd tell you Chemaev goes to 185, Leon beats Usman, and the 170-pound division burns to the ground. Uh, and we, you also have Kat Rachmanov and Jeff Neal sitting there who are also fighting, and they would have a lot to say about the future of that division. And if everything else fails, Gilbert Burns versus Jorge Masvidal, but I have a silly suspicion Jorge Masvidal does not take that fight because Jorge Masvidal is going to sit on the sideline and wait to see if Leon Edwards loses to uh, Kamaru Usman. Because if Leon Edwards loses to Kamaru Usman, Jorge is going to pop out of the Wittebergs and go, Hey Leon, you wanna fight? Now that you're number he'll probably be number one. He'll probably only slide down one slot. He'll say, Hey, Leon, you're number one in the rankings. I'm number eleven. But hey, remember we had beef. Remember I hit you that one time. I give you the three piece in a soda. I know you're at a lot better spot in your career. I know you were you were, you were the UFC champion. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day we've got this beef, so you know, that's exactly how that would go. And Leon would say, Yeah, I wanna absolutely you know I, I can't say it once again because this is a non-explicit podcast but Leon would say yes I would like to fight you so I can beat you up right so there's a lot of ways this 170 pound division can get wild and unorthodox needless to say uh Neil Magney, unfortunately I think this is going to be the last time that Neil Magny gets that big of an opportunity this was a big big shot for him right uh let's see how old Neil is here but at the end of the day, Neil Magny has had a great UFC career, but he just got an opportunity against the fifth-ranked guy in the world, and he didn't win. Um, and I'm not sure how many times you keep giving Neil Magny is only 35, so he's got some time left, I guess. But how much more? How many more big opportunities can you give Neil Magny? Right? Um, he, I guess he's got a win over Jeff Neal in 2021. That's pretty good, now, huh? Man but it's just tough because like no one in the, no one in the welterweight division fights, right? If you're asking who's the most like, who's the most game guy who's going to give someone like Neil Magny a shot, it's Gilbert Burns. And he just lost that shot. So I'm not sure how he bounces back. Maybe they do something like Sean Brady versus Neil Magny. And that would be a pretty reasonable, right? That's a reasonable get back spot for both guys. And that would be a shot for Neil Magny to jump up in the rankings. So maybe he's not completely out of this yet. Um, Maybe I spoke too soon, but Neil Magny will have to put in some work um, to get back to a position that he had at UFC 283. Moving on, Jessica Andrade and Lauren Murphy. Uh, We got robbed of the first 30-24 scorecard ever. It's an absolute sham that we didn't get three scorecards that read 30-24 on all three of them. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's no way you can score this fight other than 30-24, 30-24, 30-24 um absolutely absurd it made me the most upset all night Uh, i was not happy when they read off those scorecards because they were utterly terrible i just wanted to see a 30 24 right i can't remember the last time i've seen one i don't think i've ever seen one if you've ever seen one let me know because i can't think of one but i just wanted to see some 30 24s on the scorecard i thought it would be a memorable little moment but we got robbed by the judges um so that's terrible and at the end of the day lauren murphy's corner should have thrown in the towel. Uh, should have called it at the end of round two. Shouldn't have sent her out there in round three. Uh, you can make an argument. You could have thrown in the towel during round two, right? Uh, but round three, I, I do really have a hard time defending sending her out there. And in the third round, it doesn't get any better, right? And I don't want to... I think the job is on the corner. I don't want to... I don't want to like blame the referee because here's the referee's job is to stop the fight when someone is not intelligently defending themselves, but you can intelligently defend yourself while you're getting the absolute crap beat out of you. It's possible to get the living crap beat out of you and intelligently defend yourself. That's what happened in Max Holloway versus Calvin Cater. Max Holloway with the land of massive flurry. Herb Dean would go, I need to see something. I'm going to stop this fight. And then Kelvin Carter would throw four punches from the absolute hip. And then Herb would go, all right, he's still in this fight. He's throwing back. He can stay in this fight. We saw something similar in this fight where every time it looked like it was going to get stopped, we would see Jessica sit down on, or excuse me, we'd see Lauren sit down on some punches and throw some shots, right? And her opening up and throwing those shots to show that she was still in the fight, to show that she was, because punching herself, Landing offense is a form of defense, right? If you're punching them, that can prevent them from punching you. So that's a form of defense in my opinion. Um, But then she would open up to try and land to show I'm defending myself. Then she would get hit more. And then that cycle would kind of repeat. And we had a really bad spot here. So I'm not blaming the ref for not stopping this fight because I don't think there are many moments in that fight where she's not intelligently defending herself to the point where you need to stop the fight. But she is getting the absolute crap beat out of her for no reason in a fight she's not going to win. And it became very evident that she had no chance at winning that fight. And you, the absolute latest where that became a realization is the, is the end of the second round. You could have made that call before that point But at the end of the second round, that's when you've got to look. That's when you've got the chance. That's when you've got the chance to throw in the towel, and the corner didn't do it. And I think the corner should have done it. Um, And at the end of the day, uh, we can sit here and blame the corner, but really we should be blaming MMA because not many fighters are willing to throw in the towel, right? This isn't boxing. Throwing in the towel is not as accepted in the culture of MMA as it is in other sports. Um... So I will credit. Um, it was uh, Derek Brunson's corner throwing the cow- in the in the towel against Jared Cannonier. That is something that uh, really really is a good example of. The ref was in there to stop that fight. Derek probably took one or two extra shots, but um, the towel I don't remember the towel either got hit by the cage or wasn't you know kind of fluttered and the ref didn't see it. Well, that's a good example of, right? We know this fight's over. We'll, we'll stop it. Stop the fight. We don't need to see any more. And I think if we see more people throwing the towel, right? Because the fighter's never going to say, "Lauren Murphy's never going to be sitting on that stool and say, I want I want you to throw the towel." Right? The fighter the fighter will not say that. Your job is to keep the fighter um, from hurting themselves, right? You protect you fighters are tough because they're fighters you need to protect the fighter from their own toughness and that's even what Glover Teixeira said in his post fight that he was too tough for his own good I'm too tough for my own good and he's right he took a lot of extra punches in that fight because he's too tough right a lot of guys don't make it out of that fight with Jamal Hill a lot of a lot of girls don't make it out of that fight with Jessica Andrade right too tough for your own good sometimes right so Uh, I know it can sound as a negative to say, you know, if you're Lauren Murphy and you hear that, you know, someone saying, you know, your corner should have thrown in the towel, right? But there's fighters that don't get to that point. There's fighters that uh, um, just collapse and let the fight end, right? So it is a credit to that fighter's toughness that you even need to discuss throwing in the towel because, yes, they're losing, but, you know, fighters find a way out as well. Um, but there's fighters out there that are that are tough enough to the point where they won't even consider that, and the corner um, needs to know if that's the type of fighter that you have. Now, um, Johnny Walker, Paul Craig, uh, great finish from Johnny Walker. This is prime Johnny Walker, um, in a sense, or classic Johnny Walker, maybe uh, a better phrase. You know, unorthodox striking leading to a massive KO showed off that power. I'm impressed with performance. I don't really, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, he was just throwing the kicks out there, um, eventually caught a kick and and was able to land his own shots back. Um, So credit to Johnny Walker. um, in that one um sorry my computer was being a little wonky on me but uh that's two in a row for johnny walker that's the first time that he's been able to manage that accomplishment since 2019 um which is his fight against mitcher sirkin um since then he went oh and two then he won one then he went 0 and two pretty good turnaround here for johnny walker if he can get it to three and three and 0, in my opinion is when stuff starts getting serious right you can accidentally win two fights in a row. You can lock yourself into two fights in a row. You can lock yourself into one fight. but It's hard to accidentally get lucky and catch guys three times in a row. So If he can do it again, we're getting into serious Johnny Walker territory. And I will say this as well. Um, Ryan Spann went, is, is on a similar thing, but he's a little bit further on um, that. I think he's a little bit higher on the high than Johnny Walker. Um he also didn't get as low as Johnny Walker, right? Uh, but Ryan Spann's another guy who has just seemed to find his form at light heavyweight. Johnny Walker and Ryan Spann, both good ages as well, each each finding their prime right now. So I think the, well, people may not be overly optimistic about the top portion on the light heavyweight division. I do, I do enjoy seeing fighters like Span and Walker um, really get rejuvenated And really find some success in that 10 to 15 range of those light heavyweight rankings. Because sometimes uh, that area of the rankings can be a little bit sour or unappealing in in every division. But it's worse in a division like light heavyweight or heavyweight. Uh, So it is nice to see some of those guys who aren't in the top 10 find success and, and put on some good performances. Um, moving on, like I said, we're going to get quicker, um, on these prelims. Ihor Patera versus Mauricio Shogun Hua. Uh, Patera was able to land and put Mauricio Shogun Hua out. Were you surprised? I'm not really surprised. Uh, Shogun Hua would do unspeakable things to Ihor Patera if he was in his prime, obviously. Uh, but, you know, you get too old at one point. Not everyone's Glover to share, and that's okay. Uh, Mauricio Shogun Cool who called it at a good time. Ehor Patera will this may be his only one in the UFC in his career. He is he is in an easy le- easier weight class at late heavyweight, but um, I'm not seeing a UFC fighter here. So, um, and I'm not the biggest fan of Ehor Patera. I don't think he realized you know what really was going on. I think he's a little bit ignorant to what the what the moment meant to not only Glover Teixeira, but a lot of fans of the sport uh, felt to me like he was trying to take over Mauricio Shogun, who was moment, right? You could see him in the camera shot at one point while Mauricio Shogun, who was trying to retire, It's like, get out of the camera shot, please. So... Um, for Ehor for Patera, right? He loses to a lot of guys at light heavyweight. Um, his next fight should probably be against someone making their debut off Dana White Contender Series. In all honesty, you no, know, I don't really care who it is. Um, sign someone off Contender Series. And uh, they can fight Ehor Patera. Bruno Ferreira got a really nice win over Gregory Rodriguez. This was a surprising one. Um, that chin of Gregory Rodriguez finally cracked Bruno Ferreira was the one to do it uh, and now Bruno I, I talked about this a little bit uh, on the preview show but Bruno Ferreira was you know in over his head uh similar with uh Mezcoa, Costa and some other guys on this card but they were putting positions where you know if you go get a win you're in a good spot right uh, getting a win and a KO win in the first round over Gregory Rodriguez will put the fans on notice. That puts the UFC on notice. Uh, right? I'm I'm not convinced that Bruno Ferrero is going to be a future champion by any means. But he made a statement. And, you know, this is a good example of jumping on the ladder. He was going to have to start at the bottom of the ladder and work his way up. And they said, you can start at the middle of the ladder if you go take out Gregory Rodriguez. He took out Gregory Rodriguez and now he jumped the line. Uh, Gregory Rodriguez at the end of the day. Um, I, I, we everyone kind of knew that his chin was not gonna hold up one day. You know everyone kind of it was an unspoken agreement that one day someone's gonna get this guy and the chin's gonna go. I'm not, I'm not saying his chin's gone, but one day the chin wouldn't be able to absorb the shot. One day he gets knocked out cold and he can't out tough it. That was his fight. Um, we'll have to see it if it happens again. It could happen again. The chin may be gone forever. The chin may not be gone forever. Gregory Rodriguez may even look to work in his jiu-jitsu. I'm interested to see how Gregory Rodriguez bounces back from this. I'm not ready to count him out, uh, but I am concerned. I am very concerned about what we see now after your biggest trait was your toughness in your chin, and the chin just got cracked, so what now? Uh, Tiago Moises went out there, got a submission win over Mezquiel Costa, and um, I was impressed by Costa, right? It didn't go well for him in that second round, but I thought he held his own for a while in that first round, and Thiago Moises even gave him a compliment after the fact of like, hey, you know, I I was surprised by this guy. I I thought I should have got him out of here earlier, and I think that speaks to him as a a fighter that, you know, he stuck in there late in that second round and, and did some good things, right? He wasn't like, I was never like, oh my God, Costa's gonna win this fight, but I was like, hold on a second. He's got something going here, and Moises is another guy where if you jump on if you get to jump on Moises in your UFC debut, you know, that's that's impressive and you're you're gonna be going places and you're gonna be starting closer to the middle of that division in comparison to the outside. For Moises, I think the fight is still gonna Um just rebooked that fight. Um assuming that Kutatalatse is not you know, overly injured and, and is going to be out for a while. Gabriel Bonfim, tremendous, tremendous uh, guillotine choke. Uh, if you're unaware, uh, uh, I did place a bet on Munir Lezzez, and that one didn't feel so good, but we did end the day in the green, not by much, couple of cents, you know, basically broke even. Um, so it didn't hurt us too bad in the long run, but uh, great performance here. Great performance. Uh, he, he he was able to capitalize. He was aggressive. Came out early with the hands. Did some good. Did some good things on the feet. Got got Lizzez to try to work in some grappling, and he got a sick mounted guillotine. Bonfim is pretty legit, right? Both these Bonfim brothers are good. Um, I'm I'm in on both of them. You're know, not going to hear me say a bad thing about either of these guys for a while. Um, I'm impressed with what we saw. And who is Bonfim gonna fight next? I think we see him get someone in the likes of, oh, Gabe Green, Carlson Harris, someone like that. You know, that would make sense if if those guys are both guys who just fought against top contenders. So maybe they keep that type of fight for them. Maybe a tough. Veteran like a Court McGee. Um, maybe we see something more. Uh, I don't think we see anything higher than that. Right. I think you get one more win against another fighter in that range. Right. A slight upgrade from Munir Lizess. Right. We're getting slightly better, but uh, you're not getting too far in. Right. I think you probably could jump up to an up an, another upper echelon. Um, a Danny Roberts, maybe. I think he could go in there and compete with someone like Danny Roberts. But this welterweight division has a lot of, of solid prospects right now. And I think before you push Bonfim, you're going to get someone like... Actually, a good fight for Bonfim would be Warley Alvarez. Um, Warley um, but before you get a run on someone like uh, Bonfim at 170... We're gonna to need to see what Jack Dela De, Jack Delena can do. How high is Michael Morales going to go? What is Ian Gary doing? Right, we have a lot of, and even in the rankings, we have Shabkat Rachmanov. Um, we have a lot of young guys in those rankings as well. Sean Brady; those guys are a lot more established in their careers. They've done some better work, right? They've been in the UFC for a while longer. Um, so, so I do think, you know, we're going to see Bonfim get staggered right behind those guys in terms of trajectory in their career. But I, I do think that um, that is someone we need to watch. And I think that is very high praise um, comparing Bonfim. I think he's entered that caliber of prospect, at least. I'm not ready to say he's better than any of those guys, but I, I, I do think he could be um, better than a lot of those guys. Um, Guys like Ian Gary, I, I think he could uh, outperform them in the UFC. Uh, I'm not sold on that though yet. I would like to see something more than one fight before I plant my fat flag on a, before I print plant my flag on a prospect, and, and consider them a, a high quality fighter. Um, we may have to make an edit there, or maybe I'll, I'll leave it in. Oh boy, we're digging a deeper hole. Uh, continuing, Jelton Almeida, Shamil Abdurakimov. Jelton Almeida just went out there, picks him up, drops him, and that was the end of that. Um, now, well, it really wasn't. Picks him up, drops him, controls him on the ground. Good wrist control, right? I mentioned on the on the preview. Good wrist control from Jelton Almeida. He gets you down, he controls you, and he was able to take that to a ground and pound finish. Uh, Jelton Almeida, I think he's staying at 185 or 265. My brain is scrambled, guys. It's late here where I'm recording. I'll let you in on that secret. Um, Jelton Almeida, right? Okay. Um, Who's he fighting next? This episode's gone off the rails. It's too late to be doing this, but we're here. Who does Jelton Almeida fight next? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they give him the winner of Marcin Tabura and Blagnoe Ivanov, someone like Chris Dawkins, right? I think we start getting into more established names at light heavyweight. I think we need to jump up in in that 8 to 12 range. But if they wanted to go higher than that, I think they could. I just don't think you got anyone in the top six, top eight that are really going to accept that fight right now. Uh, So I do think you need to get him another fight before that and then uh, get him in those rankings. Um, And I do think Shamil will be a serious contender for UFC heavyweight champion. I think there are tough matchups in that top five and it's tough calling prospects at heavyweight because you could be 10 times more technically skilled and get caught by an uppercut or an overhand and go out and then it's like, well, that guy is better, but he did just get knocked out. So um, that is a possibility. Shamil Abdurakhimov is in his 40s and should retire End of that. Cody Stamen versus Luan Lacerda. I scored this fight for Cody Stamen. I saw some controversy, um, but I do think Cody Stamen did the better work in that first round, which was the close round. So I gave that round to Stamen, and I think Stamen deserved this victory. Although Luan Lacerda did really outperform my expectations, I think he did a lot better work on the feet than I was expecting. Um, I was not expecting the level of body shots he was going to have. And I did not think he would be able to get uh, Cody Stammon down like he did in that final round. So I think we saw some really good moments from Luan Lacerda. And I do think we have something here in the long term. But I do think he lost that fight. Um, and I do think Cody Stammon was a, a little bit ahead in a lot of those scenarios. Um, so I'm cool with the way that fight went down. And Luan Lacerda is 30 years old. So it's not like he's super old. But um, he's had a good time to... Make a run over four years here. Ishmael Bonfim looked um, also very good, similarly to his brother against Terence McKinney. Terence McKinney just really struggled to land that powerful shot. Right, Bonfim did a good, really good, did a really good job defensively. Managed range, stayed out of uh, trouble, um, and was still able to land powerful counter shots um, despite um, staying safe. So I think that's very, very good work from Bonfim. Also very impressive. Give him Petty Pimplett, and he does bad things to him. But um, you can say that about a lot of lightweight, so I guess that's not really an accomplishment. Although, um, I do think that Ishmael Bonfim is in a very similar position to his brother at 170, where Bonfim will be one of the better prospects um, and is a name to watch in the long run. And the difference being that It's a lot harder to break into that upper echelon of lightweights because you have to go against guys like Jim Miller, Clay Guida, who I think he beats those guys, but those are tough veterans that are hard to find. Um, Guys like Jakar Close, Jared Gordon, Bobby Green, Drew Dober, Brad Riddell, uh, Garam Kutetilate, Thiago Moises, Joel Alvarez, Diego Fajeda, Gregor Gillespie. These are unranked guys in the UFC lightweight division. And, um, so I do think it's going to take Bonfim a little bit longer than his brother to get there based off the state of the lightweight division and how deep it is. Nazrat Hasparat sitting way outside that, um, that Ranger fighter, Matt Fravola, Rafael Alves, right? A lot of talent at 155 in the unranked pool, Right and that's not even getting into what we have in the rankings. So, um but once again Bonfim I think is very similar to some previous guys that we discussed where you don't have to start at the bottom of the UFC. You made your statement in your UFC entry. You did what you needed to do in fight number 1. And instead of fight instead of starting at the bottom and working your way up, you are starting in the middle now. So, um, I think that is a, a very good thing for Bonfim. Dalby got the edge on Warley Alvarez um Warley i think should have thrown a little bit more that fight kind of struggled you know um, neither of these guys are great but um, they're still hanging around at 170. Josiane Nunez versus zaran fim um good fight and bad fight at the same time you know exactly what I mean by that Nunez struggled with the height, uh, which was pretty obvious. Um, I did think she would be able to get in or get on the inside and land a couple of knockout knockouts or uh, some shots that would be heavy enough to land a knockout or at least really damage Zay- Farron, but she wasn't able to do that. Daniel Marcos uh, in the first fight of the night was the more technical fighter. Uh, did a good job working to the body, finished with body shots. Uh, great game plan against the type of fighter that Oliveira is. Um, so that was a very good performance from Marcos. Ooh, and we really speed ran those last three fights. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Head Kick Hail podcast. Uh, we should be back next week. No fight card next week, so collect some news. Um, and I'll try and find some to- fun topics. We might do some matchmaking. Last time I did a matchmaking episode, I just talked and booked every single unbooked fighter in every single division. I took a decent amount of effort just to figure, make sure yeah, I had my T's crossed, T's crossed, and my eyes dotted figuring out who was booked against who. Um, but I might, um, I might find some like questions and things that could be interesting to talk about. Like should Hamzat Chumay move up to 185? Uh, who should get the title shot in this division? Things like that. So, um, so I might just find some interesting topics, pull them together. Um, don't really have much of a—we won't have much of a preview for next week's card because four of the fights on there are Road to the UFC guys, and I've watched zero Road to the UFC fights. I keep saying one night I'm just going to sit down and binge them all. just haven't gotten to it yet, um, and I don't think I'm going to get to all well the Road to the UFC guys yet, so I'm not really going to give you a preview type in-depth stuff on that, and that takes four fights right off the card. So I'm not going to go too in-depth on a preview, but I will touch on, obviously, the main event and the main card in general in total and there's a couple other fights on the prelims um that aren't road to the ufc fights but we're not going to be covering those road to the ufc fights um in detail i have seen a handful of clips um i don't really know any of the fighters and which clips were with with which guys you know maybe someone got a cool clip and then got knocked out in their next fight i don't know i haven't been following it at all um but um uh, nonetheless, I am interested and very intrigued to see how those guys look, and I am looking for some prospects there. So I do have my eye tuned in heavily to um, those fights. And I think the recap will be a good opportunity to talk to those to talk about those guys um, from road to the UFC so that should be fun. But like I said, we'll be back next week uh, with a new episode. But most importantly, thank you for watching this episode of the Head Kick KO podcast. Goodbye. Oh, in kicked him in the face. Kevin Lee with the ultimate oh. highlight.